mate. Hi, mate. How are you? Oh, it's a, just a, it's a crazy week. It has been a crazy week. Tell me about tell me about your week. Oh well, just trying to trying to find different angles, trying to you know come up with something new, trying to gain insight. You got to be careful about reading too much, right? You've got to be careful about always in research and giving advisory services to clients about taking too much in, right? Taking too many inputs in and then not processing, right? And just spewing back what they already know. And so I've just been careful to, you know, offer insight that I think is either a different angle or a different objective or a different way of looking at things rather than trying than regurgitating what everyone's throwing around. And so this is one of those things where when the flow of events is like minutes by minute, you can just go down rabbit holes in Twitter for hours and hours and get nowhere. Yeah. So it's good you know what it is? It's, it's good to stay. Yeah. Because we live in we live so much and recency bias is so difficult to break. It's trying to break free from recency bias is so difficult. And I was writing on the weekend about just the whole notion of change. And clearly, if you're in Russia or Ukraine, if you're a citizen of either countries, your lives have changed forever in different ways. It's the ravages of war in Ukraine and, and the tragedy that is there. But the ongoing economic and pending economic ruin of Russia is going to be you know, devastating for Russian society as well. Again, you've made the point, step back and, and look at all of this. And is this going to be a dramatic change for the world? And again, it's very easy in the desire, as researchers, we the desire to be constantly relevant, right? And I think you and I would both agree that both of us probably write too much at times because we have to feel like we have to be in front of folks where at the end of the day, things don't change that much. I mean, outside of your slightly higher gas bills, Paul, your life hasn't changed. I mean, outside of a you know, outside of the elevated cost of bread and and gasoline and stuff like that, I mean, my life hasn't changed that much. And I think we often think about these geopolitical events, even the real like significant ones like 9-11 and what we're seeing here in Ukraine, and extrapolate that these are global events. But the reality is that all geopolitics is local. And outside of, outside of even even things like 9/11 and the war on terror, after the initial shock of 9/11, and I use this as an example from a from a market from a market standpoint. Remember in 2002, everyone said you had to hedge terrorism risk. You had you had everyone has to buy own puts on the S and P or have CDS on something to to hedge terrorism risk so you could sleep at night. And we did that for a while, and we realised we spent loads of money and had performance drag and terrorism didn't happen. And it might happen tomorrow, but it didn't happen. And eventually what happens is you become so immune to a risk that you think, well, it's almost like a, like a Pascal's wager where you sort of think, well, if everyone else is, if, if no one else is hedging, I don't need to hedge either because if something bad happens, we're all screwed. And from a relative performance standpoint, I probably haven't underperformed. Right, so it's, and I think in the in the callousness that is financial financial assets, in the very very near term, we are going to think about Ukrainian risk in such a way where it's going to be not the number one driver of beta as it is today. It'll morph into a one of the risk factors we think about, and then in probably relatively short order, it's going to be that event that we just don't hedge anymore. Well, I think that's right. That was my point to my clients on the weekend was that BCA had, uh, BCA is, you know, very sober research. It's quite good research, very sober. 
And they said basically it would overwrite equities because if there's a nuclear holocaust, there's going to be nobody around to criticize your performance. It was one of those arguments. That's so cynical and bitchy, but hey, it's markets, right? Wall Street, it starts at a river and ends in a graveyard, that, that old thing, right? Wow. So there's that. And then, and then also I have this algorithm that looks at these short-term trading areas such as volume and RSI and, and MACD and moving averages. And it's starting to look a little more positive. And so I, I kind of noted that yesterday. And nobody wants to hear that right now, Paul. Everybody is yeah. in real ultra negative mood right now. And I think there are people who are concocting scenarios that are sort of end of the world, 40% drop in equities. And by the way, I, I, I really daring people to bet me the Fed is going to do a gigantic U-turn in the next two months, which is what I said in December. I said it in January. I'm saying it again. They will do a U-turn and they will take away their rate hikes. And look at the 210 yield curve. It's down to 20 basis points. It's well, almost- that's the thing. I think an inverted yield curve, Paul, is a very dangerous thing for equities because we've had the curve, two tens have been inverted on five occasions since the Volcker years, sorry, and back in the early 80s. In all those five occasions, the Fed has cut rates within four months. Now, the problem that you have in this, this scenario, and let's face it, this is a highly unusual cycle scenario that we are coming out of and going in, frankly, going into. Yeah. Um, the shitstorm for equities is a an inverted yield curve with 7% inflation. Yeah, it, it, that, that, that is the ultimate. What do, you, what do you do then? Yeah, it's the ultimate in stagflation. And in that kind of an environment, raising rates won't help. And you've got to do what you can to keep negative interest rates from getting too, too out of hand. Paul, here's what you do. Paul, here's what you do. Here's what you've got to do something that is what Japan did. You've got to do window guidance and you've got to tell people on Wall Street, we're watching you. We need to enact this regulation and we need to enforce this one that's on the books. We need you guys to cut back on leverage for speculative instruments and for equities. There's going to be a lot more micromanagement behind the scenes to keep investors from doing what they should be doing, which is buying financial assets. Yeah. So so the Fed and and entities are going to try to prevent investors from doing exactly the things they should be doing in a moment of very high negative real rates, which is to get deploy your cash in any way possible, but get out of cash. And in doing so in, in a recession, during a profits recession, equities are a really bad idea. And so that's why I think gold has had a $200 move in pretty quick order. Everybody hates gold. I am just was talking to a couple of clients about that today. I, um, I'm the, I'm the wrong guy. Yeah. You have to own the mines. Don't own the stock. These commodity producers own the mine. <laughs> That's easier said than done. And again, there's great charts of floating around. I'm sure you've seen it. When If you look at the you know, the price of miners from a PE standpoint versus the price of gold, the spread's never been the spread's never been never been wider. I mean, but I I'm not a fan of gold. I I once embarrassed my uh, my mother by getting involved in a in a rather heated discussion with Peter Schiff on CNBC back in 2014, I think it was, where and CNBC called it the bullion brawl. And when I tell you, I I cannot show my disdain for gold bugs has no boundaries, Paul. So I'm, I'm the wrong guy to talk about to talk about gold. But I think, look, I would argue that I think the arguments for equities remain compelling. 
I push back on the notion of a profits recession when, you know, the, yes, higher gasoline prices are a crimp to the US consumer, undeniably, undeniably so. I think that we need to think about those oil prices back to 2008 levels, nominal, it's not their nominal prices and not real prices. And I think that that's something that needs to be taken into account. I don't know if $125 or even $150 oil is enough of a catalyst to cause a, a an earnings recession in a US economy that is dominated by tech companies. I think that we need to be careful that you know, the paradigm in that regard is a little different. So I'm certainly not a believer that we're on the verge of seeing continual multiple contraction in the, in the world's highest quality companies. At a minimum, it's safe to say that you know, Europe has a recession, has a severe recession risk in the, in the second half of this year. I don't see that risk in the United States. I do think that there is still a lot. Look, the, the, savings, rate is, is the savings rate remains high enough to be a, a fairly significant cushion to, to, um, to spending in the US. But look, I think it's pretty clear. We, we were pricing in seven hikes for 2022 um, only, you know, less than, less than a, month, about a month, about a month ago, right? And now I think we've got four and a half priced for this year, something, something, to, right. that, something to, that, to that extent. And that's probably the right number. And that's probably the right, right number. So, but look, I think, I think that for me, it's the, the, the commodity supply dynamics are... Four rate hikes, you're, these people are smoking something. They're not paying attention to what is going on with the world. We are headed for a recession. Europe is going to, I think, be hit hard. This war is going to get very intense and very bloody. And I think NATO is going to be dragged in indirectly without having, um, I think every, people are kidding themselves that this is a, that this, there's some ephemeral thing going on here. I think I was talking to my sources in Ukraine today and in Romania, and this is all out war. The, I mean, in civil wars, Paul, very bloody. Net wars, national wars, when the war ends, people go home. In civil wars, it is personal. It is deeply personal. And they're always, always much bloodier than a, a war of between two sovereign nations. And I, I just think people are kidding themselves. If, if I mean, look at look at all of these items that are are indicating very serious uh, constraints coming up. It's not just one thing; it's everything. It's nickel, copper, manganese, iron, wheat. Everything, a hundred percent. Right. Look, I mean, at hundred percent. And look what happened to nickel today. Nickel was up 100% today, and it blew up the London Metals Exchange. The London Metals Exchange had to close. CCB is looking at hundreds of millions of dollars in losses. They made that margin call. So CCB's paid that, paid that call, right? And, Paul, I think it goes back to a lot of the stuff that we've done on the, on the, on the climate and the environmental side of things where, you know, the, the push towards the EV push, so Ford comes out and announces by 2026, they're going to make 2 million EVs a year, right? If you could tell me where Ford is going to get the batteries from and the battery components from to build those 2 million EVs a year, I'd love to, I'd love to hear it because Ford is making these, these not, not a net zero pledge early, but certainly they're, they're pushing towards, you know, certainly more sustainability in their battery output. But the, the price of nickel is, is, is very telling because the grades of nickel at the LM, that LME will accept as delivery is actually a tiny percentage of, 
of, of nickel grades globally, right? Most of the nickel that's produced in the world is, well, it's about 50% now, heading to 60% by 2025, is produced in Indonesia. Most of that Indonesian nickel of, of a grade that's too low for the LME standards. So the, the reason you had the problem with, with the nickel at the LME is that Russia does produce that higher grade nickel and there is there are some shortages there. And we had a good old-fashioned short squeeze and, and margin calls and it all fed upon itself. But the bigger issues for the bigger issues for nickel going forward is the the disparity between the amount of nickel that's produced, which is really toxic, nasty stuff, right? Which is so a ton of nickel pig iron in, in Indonesia produces 50 tons of carbon, right? It's just awful. But Tesla's telling us that they're only going to source green nickel and you know, other companies are, are implying the same thing. There's not enough green nickel in the world to produce a million Teslas, let alone two million Fords, right? And so I think that this the EV revolution is going to be slowed, is going to be one, one victim of this tightness of supply, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's whether it's the battle between green and not green nickel and whatever that means. At the end of the day, the climate transition is the driver of these systemic issues that we're facing in European gas, that we're facing in the EV space, that we're facing in nickel and the like. And these, so I wrote about this today, that we have a, nickel has a schism right now, but has long-term stresses. And things may alleviate, and, and nickel prices at hundred thousand, hundred thousand dollars a ton. Well, they're not going to. That's not going to last for long. But the days of twenty five thousand dollar nickel, I think, are behind us, because the the source it's just going to get more complicated, and, and the grades of nickel and these sort of things become vitally important going forward. But something, mate, something I'd love to chat to you about, mate, is the complexities of OPEC, France, Iran, Saudi. Israel in terms of oil supply, right? So we heard something out of OPEC today, which basically was the first comments we've heard out of OPEC since the entirety of the, since this this all began. And they basically said, we can't resupply, add 7 million barrels a day, right? That's fine. But obviously you've got the Iran nuclear deal in the background, something that the Saudis and the Israelis clearly don't want to have. But talk a little bit about the dynamics around that in Iran, you know, again, because a solution, one of the solutions to this problem is to bring back one to one and a half million barrels of Iranian oil, bring that back on the market. But clearly, the Saudis and the Israelis don't want that. The Israeli Prime Minister flew to, flew to Moscow to meet with Putin on a Saturday, which apparently is the first time that an Israeli Prime Minister has ever flown on a Saturday. A big deal. Talk a little bit about those sort of geopolitical dynamics around, around the oil price and what you think about sort of medium-term oil oil prices and oil and oil supply? Well, I mean, this is one of the, the problems where Biden is getting nailed on $4 gasoline. There was a, a really big uh, brouhaha yesterday with his uh, press secretary on $4. And the guy was basically said he'd gone around to all these people in gasoline lines around Washington, D.C. And he had been saying, this is what people are saying, and, and this is going to sink your administration. And, and of course, they are very um, alert to that. And so But here's the problem. Biden can't stand the leadership of Saudi Arabia, somebody who he went out of his way, out of his way to call a murderer, which he is. And trying to make peace with Iran right now is is radioactive, you know, politically. And Venezuela, forget it. 
Right, Venezuela's part well, of this. Well, there's conversations with Venezuela about bringing Venezuelan oil back as well. Well, I know, I know, but all of that is so, it's not a, It's not just odious, it is, it's political dynamite for Biden. What, what price is he willing to pay to get gasoline prices down to like $3? Keystone Pipeline gets put back on? Now that'd be a political, that'd, that's a politically difficult one for Biden. I know, all of that, all of that, all of that. I, th- I believe he's, he's, a, he's going to go to Saudi Arabia in the next few days. And that's what I heard today. Is that true? I hadn't heard that. That's that was what I heard today, and that's going to How be. How does that not look like a pandering trip? <laughs> Jesus, I mean, like, please, no. pl- hi, fellas, MBS, please pump more. I mean, Jesus. I'm sorry for calling you a murderer. Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, the uh, all, it, all, just all terrible, terrible. But don't forget, though, Russia. You're going to walk, walk in with a jerry can? Like he's going to walk in with two jerry cans? Please, please fill them up. I mean, well. Yep. Yeah. Although Russian oil is only about, as I understand it, Russian oil is only about three or four percent of the U.S. total oil supply. But it is. I mean, everything counts at the margin when you are having very high prices that the marginal, you know, supply. But but Paul, that's that's an interesting point, though. But I I argue that there's already an embargo on Russian oil. Right. Because whoever that, that let's be honest, whoever that idiot at Shell was who authorized the buying of the Russian oil tanker, that tanker. At, at record discounts to spot should be fired because the optics of buying Russian oil is, is just so awful that, again, the United States can buy Russian oil, but they're not, right? The Chinese are certainly going to buy Russian oil and will continue to do so, but will India buy Russian oil? Because you don't want to be viewed as a global pariah for supporting Putin in doing so. So I think much of the of the the, the rally in oil, the last $25 from 100 to 125 has a lot to do with the fact that there is a de facto embargo on it now because it might be in the market, but no one's, no one's hitting the bid, even at severe discounts outside of China. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also, you know, what I've seen also in the last 48 hours, 72 hours is, and I've been completely baffled by this, is the way in which China has done a real U-turn and India's really turned up the volume, both of them getting right behind Russia. China's U-turn on this has been really remarkable. China just basically said, that's it. We are fully behind Russia. We are not you know, hesitating. We are not neutral here. We're fully behind it. And uh, the rhetoric in India is also uh, very supportive. And so you're getting a, a Russia-India-China alliance here that's um, getting pretty ironclad. I think, I don't know what you think, I think this is a, a terrible mistake for China because you really have the tail wagging the dog here unless China has some really, you know, nifty, crafty, long-term ulterior motive here. Well, I bet I was going to, look, again, I expect this from the Chinese, right? I would have expected the Indians to be more agnostic on this. And I get that this is very painful very, very, very painful for the Indian economy, right? I get that completely. But India has a real chance of ostracizing itself because let's face it, is China going to be at best a fair weather friend in this process? It's not like India and China get along, right? And uh, for the, they seem to be very, very strange bedfellows in this process, given the fact that the rest of the world is so unified against Putin that, yeah. I, I don't know, are, they, are, the, are the Indians trying to go in there and buy, to buy cheap Russian assets? I don't know. I mean, for that, for me, the, the, the Indian support of this is, is a little bewildering to me. All of India's equipment for its army against Pakistan is Russian equipment. 
what are they going to do, say, condemn it and then get cut off from all replacement parts, new equipment that their troops have been training on for 15 years? Forget yeah. it. Yeah. And someone told me, a funny, very well-connected person told me today, look very carefully at what China's planning. China's been pulled into this. It's been duped. They're furious. They want blood. They want to say, you know what, we're going to bail you out of this, Putin, but you owe us. And this is part of a long-term strategy of China to swallow up Russia. This well, is a... you can't, but you can't tell me that there's not a there's that uh, Sino that Sinopec or PetroChina are not going to take a big stake in either Gazprom or Gazprom or Rosneft in the next in the next few months. Or who's going to end up buying BP stake right in Russia? It could be the Chinese at a very big discount. You know? yeah. <laughs> no, but again, I, I, the Indian thing is is bewildering me. I don't. I. 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 I you, the point you make militarily, you make the point very very well. But but look, I mean. You know, a, a NATO embargo or an EU-US embargo on Russian oil, right, may, as, as the US likes to write these things this way, imply embargoes of third-party countries from doing this. Does India want to really risk the, the ire of the United States by being supportive of something, of a country that has been, that, you know, again, they're, they're standing out there in the wind being supportive of Russia, right, when the rest of the world, ex-China, is on the other side. Yep. And also, of course, as we all know, for embargoes and sanctions, there's 118 ways to get around them, especially third country, third party, oil tankers with weird Madagascar flags on them, you know, weird things happening, right? And so there's 116 ways to get around any embargo. China's been doing that for the last four years. China's been getting around American embargoes and sanctions in, you know, 16 ways to Sunday. And so, so there's that. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm also thinking about poor old Singapore, which came down very hard against Russia. And suddenly when China does a about face and, and starts to say, we love you, Russia, Singapore is like, uh-oh, did we zig when China zagged? <laughs> Right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, is is that something that really, I mean, I don't know. Is that something that really is going to hurt, you know, Singapore-China relations? Oh, it could, for sure, for sure. China's, you know, going to say we don't, we're we're not interested in your views about, you know, Russia. We, I mean, you need to hop to. I mean, Singapore is this tiny thing. And China can just snap its finger tomorrow and everybody can leave. And you leave Singapore high and dry. There's a lot of Chinese capital in Singapore and a lot of cooperation on a lot of stuff. And so I think, and by the way, you saw what happened in Hong Kong today as well. The the Chinese representative of the whole COVID, just nightmare from hell, confused, confused grandma, basically said, we're going to strengthen our national security laws. We're going to come down even harder against foreigners who try to do any kind of monkey business in Hong Kong and beware. That was, it was a very loud and clear message. It's the most uh, hardcore message I have seen somebody in Hong Kong from China say about what's next for national security enforcement in, in Hong Kong. So all this, putting all this together, Paul, is China is not putting up any more with any sort of arguments. It's like no more arguments. We're done. We're done. Something happened in the last like week. Well, it's a part of the you know, obviously the part the, obviously the media, the official. Well, media. there's understand. always a bellicose. There's, there's always a, a, a more sort of nationalist stance tends to come out of these sort of things. So, is that a natural consequence of the of the formal meetings? 
I think this language is pretty hard. This is the most hardcore language I've seen, especially with regard to Hong Kong, especially with the U-turn on you know, un, pretty much unconditional support of Russia, which I have so many friends today who are 30, 40 year veterans of looking at China tell me unanimously, China's making a terrible mistake. And yet this is the road China's decided to go down. It's hard to see how ostracizing yourself from the EU completely and many parts of the emerging world as well, right? I don't get that at all. So, so, so let's finish up here. What are you looking at in the next week in regards to developments in this? I think the key question is, and forgive my callousness, when, does, when do markets start to, to look through all this and to deprioritize Ukraine? Is it simply a function that we have to have clear evidence of a peaking oil price? Yeah, that's what I was trying to get, get my head around this weekend as well, is what, what needs to be fully discounted in order for markets to stabilize. I think we're probably, you know, out of like 10 steps of capitulation or, or, or solution. I think we're at number four. Normally, by the time we get to seven, markets stabilize. So I think we have some other bad news. We have more, as I say, we have more glass to crawl over. I think that this is all out war. I think that we are looking at NATO members getting involved with passing equipment over to Ukraine that is not direct NATO action, which is going to help tilt the field in favor of Ukraine. I think we have to watch out whether Chechnya or Ossetia near Georgia starts to get uh, unstable again. The Russian economy has imploded. Ukraine is likely to have a failed harvest in the fall. So I, I, I really worry about like grain prices, oats, barley, and wheat. Ukraine is in the top five in the world. There's uh, just Sorry to interrupt, mate. There's also uh, pending hoarding of fertilizer, which a lot of that, yeah. comes, a lot of potash comes out of, out of Russia. Uh, and apparently yeah. there is hoarding of fertilizer in Brazil, which goes to yes. coffee and all stuff like that. Uh, Weirdly, Ukraine is one. It's interesting you say that. I, I noted that uh, to my clients last week. Ukraine is one of the largest producers of ammonia in the world, which is interesting, and bees for honey in the world. Not to mention all the other minerals and metals that we discussed. And so we are looking at a structural supply problem for the indefinite future. Is that discounted? I don't think so. Is the very remote possibility of NATO countries getting dragged into a war, I doubt it. But Poland giving over its MiGs to Ukraine to be replaced by F-16s from the U.S. is going to happen probably this week. And yeah. so is that an act of war? I don't know, right? I don't know. I think there's going to be a lot of cyber attacks uh, all over the place. I think that's uh, the big risk. And, and that's what bothers me. And that's why one of my favorite trades is like CrowdStrike and these other companies that are in cybersecurity, I think is one of the big winners for 2022. And they've all done, uh, they've all done tremendously well. Yeah, so I've been looking at that. And then I, I think that all these poor guys like Hostess and, and all these um, breads and cake makers are going to get their margins crushed to pieces for quite a while. And, and so I, I think we're going to see a margin squeeze in, in, in the S&P 500, which causes multiple compression. And so I still think we're not out of the woods. I still think people haven't digested that. And that's why when I hear people saying there's going to be four rain increases, we have not digested what is happening right in front of us. 
And if you're still talking about Prime Minister Bennett trying to go to Moscow and coming up with a solution, you're kidding yourself. Mm. You are kidding yourself. This is all out war. When you have this much violence and death and destruction, people just don't say, well, let's go sit down and have coffee. I always reminded people today, at the beginning of the American Civil War, people would go out onto the battlefields with picnic baskets and have picnics in the Battle of Bull Run in 1861 in like May or June. Because it was just going to be a fun thing that was going to be over. We're going to watch some people die, but it's going to be uh, a fun thing. And that is a be very morbid picnic. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But, but that was the attitude. Was that this was, hey, let's go have they were very screwed up in 1860. <laughs> and so everyone thought it would be over in no time flat. And this that was like one of the, in terms of per capita people that were killed, that was one of the bloodiest uh, civil wars. In, 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 it was extremely bloody. 750,000 people in a, in, a, in a very small country. Mm. And so this is a civil war. Civil wars are extremely bloody. I do. There was talk in Ukrainian language chatter of some of my Ukrainian contacts this weekend about that Ukraine now had tactical nuclear weapons and had clearly told Russia that if you use yours, we will use ours. And so there was that kind of language. Nobody can confirm it. But that just there goes your wheat harvest for a long time. Right. We have to calm down. The banks are the banks trading on my algorithm are still very 50-50. There's a lot of washed out. I mean, imagine you saw Unicredit was down 16%, you know, on Friday. Well, and Deutsch and Deutsch is down what, 40% from its high? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. 40, I mean, I'm uh, sorry, 40% in a month. I mean, it's yeah. It's, yeah. So. Unicredit was down yeah, another 7% yesterday. So so 20, it's lost a quarter of its value. In two trading days, I mean, we are getting a little bit extreme here, a little bit oversold, but I think we're probably at a trading buy right now. That's kind of what I've, I've been implying to my clients, but we have to see what's going on. So I'm going to be digging deeper and all that. There's a lot, uh, one of my clients is uh, one of the best thinkers on banks that I know in the world, works for one of the very big, 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 big 20 billion plus hedge funds in New York was saying that. People just underestimate how much losses there's going to be in, um, in European banks on this. I mean, I'll give you an example. There's 650 planes sitting in Russia now that can't move, right? You can't go in to get them. And if you went in to get them, you can't fly them out. And by the way, all of the accounts are frozen because Russia can't send money. So they're in default. And so your, 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 your aircraft leasing companies are in deep, deep, deep trouble. And so we're looking at somewhere between three to four billion dollars of leased aircraft that are in default, right? By the and no, and no way, and no way, to, and no way to seize the assets. No way to seize the assets. No way to get the assets. No way for Russia to pay for it, the leasing payments. Now, whether it's and look, whether it's the sale of Chelsea Football Club, oligarchs selling art. I mean, we're not talking about the losses in private in the private bank space are going to be huge because the only one thing that they have in common is that they all had leverage loans to the oligarchs, you know, whether it's homes in Belgravia, you know, properties in the south of France or Mykonos, whether it's baskets or NFTs, right? These, these, it was the, it was the money, oligarchs were a huge moneymaker for private banks. And as you said last week, the B of A has 100, 100 people in the securities division in Moscow, right? You only have 100 people in a, in, in, in a city if you have a massive balance sheet in the city and B of A 
in terms of global exposure to Russia is a rounding error. HSBC, JP Morgan, UBP, Credit Suisse, UBS, we've not heard the end of this yet. I agree. I agree. I agree. I agree. Have a good I week. Think- Don't, no, no picnics. No Civil War picnics for you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Schulte. <laughs> we'll catch you later. Bye for now. 1860s were reared. <laughs> Bye for now.